everyone. I want to welcome you to another episode of Real Life Success Stories of Private Practice with Dr. Gretchen Kubaki. Hey, Gretchen. Well, hello, Callie. <laughs> Thanks for doing this with me. Um, I'm really excited to have you here and to let everyone hear about your journey and the different ways that you've taken your story and turned it into a business. Okay. So, I'm here with you. Tell me a little bit about um, how you got into um, this kind of work in the first place. It goes back a long, long time. My mother was a psychology major, and I used to read a lot as a kid. I read everything up to and including the encyclopedia. And so I ended up reading all her psych books when I was probably eight or ten. And I thought they were really interesting. And so it was something that was always kind of lurking in the back of my mind. It wasn't what I pursued in college, but in my mid-30s, I had accumulated this literally five-foot-high stack of catalogs for grad school for psychology. And I just thought, you know what? Now or never. And so I went back to grad school. So it really just came out of a curiosity, so to speak, or... Um, you know, I always was curious and interested in how human beings operated and why we did the things that we did. I think at a certain point, what happened was I was really unhappy in the job that I had at that time. And it was one of those things where it felt like, you know, you're just getting older, you might as well go do this and do something that's interesting and gives back and isn't subject to the same sorts of stressors mm -hmm. that the work I was doing then had. Of course, I took on a whole different set of stressors. <laughs> right. <laughs> going to grad school and opening a business and acquiring clients and all of that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it was, just, it was sort of an evolution. It was I was always the armchair psychologist sort of mm -hmm. looking at things, and it just it was a pull that was there. Yeah. So when you graduated from school, did you go straight into practice or? I started, let's see, I, the year that I wrote my dissertation, I started a tiny private practice with someone, uh, literally two or three clients, uh, just kind of for some practice and mainly because I really, really wanted that supervisor to be my supervisor. So that was the way I had to do it. Um, and then I took that practice and grew it a little bit and I still kept my day job, but I cut the hours and eventually I didn't have the day job and then I was just in private practice. What was that like to have a day job? I think a lot of people do this. They have a day job and then the little private practice, whatever size that is for them. How right. How did you balance all of that? Uh, for me, the way I balanced it was I was working actually at a place where we had a 980 schedule. So I had every other Friday off anyway, and I was able to talk somebody into letting me have every Friday off. <laughs> so I opened a Friday Saturday practice mm -hmm. and I was already working long days anyway. So adding more days and time didn't feel like a big thing to me. Mm -hmm. So it worked okay for me, actually, to have a part-time business. I had had a different part-time business previously also, so I was used to working evenings and weekends. It was just that now it was psychology instead of something else. Mm -hmm. And um, 
when you had the practice in the beginning, did you have a niche or emphasis or were you, how were you getting clients and any of that? <laughs> or was it just like random people call word of mouth? Why are you it laughing was... at me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing thinking back because it was really random yeah. uh, in the very beginning because everybody that I was trained by was a generalist. I think it was a little bit the pre-niching yeah. days. And so it was just like, well, yes, of course you treat all of these 17 things. And so I literally got clients, one of whom uh, turned out to have schizophrenia, who literally wandered in from the street to the office space that I shared and seemed to need some psychological assistance. And I was there. And so they went and grabbed me from the back and <laughs> thus I got a client. Wow. So, so that was really random. That uh, is probably the most random I've heard so far. <laughs> it, it was literally a walk-in. I was working in an interdisciplinary holistic health clinic. Mm -hmm. And I was the person who had that skill set. Mm -hmm. um, I also got a couple of people that came through just acquaintances that knew I was setting up a little private practice. Um, and then I started to develop a niche probably a couple years after I was licensed. I started reading about marketing, how do you build a business, and I started with a niche in infertility. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, a jumping off point to other related diseases, gynecological and hormone-based sorts of things. And then it's kind of spread into the general category of health and medical psychology. So as it turned out, most of my training fell into those categories anyway. It was, again, like the just sort of being drawn to psychology thing was I kept going to the, the medical stuff. You know, I was a frustrated doctor. I wanted to be a doctor when I was four years old. And um, so I just kept building skills in that area. And then people would know, oh, she's the one that can talk to a cancer patient. She's the one that can talk to somebody who has this or that. So that was kind of how it evolved. Mm -hmm. And then the decision to just do private practice, was that circumstance thrust upon you or an intentional decision? It was both. but <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's a little bit of a complicated answer. It started out, I was going to leave the job that I had for many years and start a private practice, but I also got licensed just before the recession hit. Mm -hmm. And immediately my little tiny budding practice was non-existent. And I thought, maybe I better hold on to this job for a little while longer. Well, you know how long the recession went on. Yeah. Um, and I had intended to stay for probably five, six, seven more years but circumstances changed. I got laid off, actually. And so it was one of those things where it was like, okay, well, it's a good thing you had a backup plan because yeah, yeah. that time is here and now. Um, so that was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it was something where it was the choice, but it was forced upon me a little bit earlier than I would have liked it to have been. Yeah. Definitely. And... When, with, how do you think that changed the way you did business with it being kind of like that net got ripped from underneath you a bit? <laughs> that net totally got ripped out from underneath me. It was, it was a little bit scary, a little bit intimidating. I had some fear, and I think what it changed in terms of how I did business was it kind of gave me a swift kick in the behind. I... 
actually proceeded with doing things like renting my own office suite, whereas I had been subleasing space by the day from someone. So I found somebody uh, to share the office with. We um, were both on the lease for that. So it was a big commitment to take on a five-year lease um, when I knew I was losing a job that I'd had for a long time. Um, I believe in that kind of if you build it, they will come idea and that there is something about really seriously committing to it that makes you push harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the big thing, I think. I also kind of got a little bit obsessive about seeking information about marketing and practice building. Um, probably ended up spinning out a little bit on learning stuff. I, I get a little bit of analysis paralysis going on. Right. So in terms of other things about how I changed the business, I don't know that I changed the business really mm-hmm. at all. I've continued to be focused on health psychology. I have a second specialty as a bereavement facilitator mm-hmm. um, that is something that I it's actually kind of predates being a psychologist. I was doing it as a lay person a little bit. Uh, so I market to both of those niches. Okay, cool. And do you mind me sharing that I can cut this out (laughs) that you're single? You may. Okay. Because I think this is important to talk about if if you're okay with it. I am. Because there's a lot of people are like, well, I'm single, so I can't do private practice. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be single and a business owner? Like that whole, how do I get my own insurance? And, Mm -hmm. you know, well, it's, I have to stay in this job because of insurance is like the big one I hear, but Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of wondering what your thoughts are about it. That's a great question. Um, I think, wow, (laughs) it's actually kind of a loaded question. I know it is, but um, if you're willing to share. Okay. Not, not for me personally in that, in that way, but I think it's a loaded question because I think that there is a lot of discussion in our therapist community about who gets the privilege of being a part-time therapist versus a full-time therapist. And Hmm. I've definitely observed there is a level of privilege about those who are married versus those who are single. I saw it in my grad program. I've seen it in private practice, which is that it does seem like there's a lot more freedom and possibility. You can make more choices to really do what you want to do. And so I think sometimes that desperation of knowing that you're the sole support for your household pushes you to make bad choices. I think when I was starting out, definitely I accepted clients who were a really bad fit or I just had a gut sensation. This is not going to go well with And it didn't. Not that that's ever happened to me ever. (laughs) Yeah. The insurance issue is really huge and scary. Yeah. And it became less scary. The timing was very interesting to me that that really was a huge reason I was hanging on to my job because I do have a chronic illness and it would have been impossible and or incredibly expensive to get insurance before It is now still incredibly expensive, but it is not impossible. So for me, that was a huge, huge, huge breaking point. So my message to anyone would be, don't let that be the thing that stops you. You will figure out how to pay for it if what you really want is to be in private practice. And I absolutely 
know backwards and forwards the costs of the insurance and what it means to be separated from that kind of corporate insurance blanket. Um, I think also as an individual, there is that thing where there's the fear around, well, what if I do get sick? What if I'm injured? Uh, there's more pressure around it. And so I think what it does is it, it puts more pressure to be kind of a proactive planner and really be future oriented. Um, on the good side, it's also a push. You know, you have to do it. You really, really, really have to do it. So I don't care if you don't feel like making those phone calls to reach out to people or going to that mixer. You do it because this is what you need to do. And you can't just fall back on somebody else's income. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I appreciate how you answered it, actually, and talking about the issue of privilege. Um, and even for those of us that are married, where we're still the primary income. <laughs> right. Um, you know. Yeah, that's another thing, you know, is what about that? Because nowadays, you know, realistically speaking, 80% of therapists are women. Mm-hmm. And interestingly... Because of the fact that when we have a good practice, we can make a substantial income, we are increasingly in the position of being the primary breadwinners. And then what does that do to the, the power dynamic and the differential in the relationship? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what does that do to things like child rearing and all of those issues um, and the sense of responsibility around it? So I think it depends, too, a lot on your age and what your experience and exposure has been around all of that. But it's, it's a shifting dynamic, definitely. Well, thank you for being willing to talk about it. You're welcome. I put you on the spot. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that. (laughs) That's okay. Where do you see, um, in terms of your work, you've always done one-on-one, and has there been other ways? Because health psychology, it's kind of unique. I love hearing about kind of what you do. And so what other ways have you used your skills in a, in your, as a business, uh, mm-hmm. and provided services to your community beyond the one-to-one? Um, okay. What I do with the bereavement work, actually, I have worked, uh, for a long time off and on for the local community mental health center, facilitating groups for people who've lost a loved one to suicide. I've done pro bono trainings with them for people who are working the suicide prevention hotlines. Um, and I also tend to be the leader in anything where a group is forming randomly. So I use my skill set as a therapist to help in those sorts of things. I've also done a lot of community service work with the local psychological association, most recently as their treasurer. Um, so I served actually as the coordinator of the health psychology committee, getting speakers in, doing that sort of thing, educating other psychologists and therapists about the profession of health psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do all of those sorts of things. Right now, I'm pulling back a little bit more into private practice um, model and really kind of stepping out of that and into working on a book that I've had on the back burner for a while. Hmm. How is that going? <laughs> That's going really well. I am at 340-some-odd pages of draft. Wow. <laughs> Which means it's pretty much the bulk of the content is out of me and onto the page. 
it needs reorganizing and work, but it's, um, it's the next step for me because I really love doing psychoeducation and that feels like a frustrating limit in private practice to me that I can only do that one session at a time. That's a wonderful point too. I think that idea of that one session at a time and how in some ways it's limiting when maybe there's other avenues to disseminate your knowledge mm-hmm. uh, and make an impact. How'd you find out you're a writer? When I was seven, I started writing poetry. Really? Beautiful. (laughs) I saw an image in the newspaper of a white swan in a light snow on a pond. And it was so intensely beautiful, it inspired me to write a poem about it. And I... I don't know what happened, but I just, I started writing poetry and then other kids found out I was writing poetry and I started teaching them to write poetry. So we'd go (laughs) sit in the field at school and write poetry. (laughs) Again, a leader. (laughs) I love that though. Yeah. I can't seem to get out of the leader slash teacher. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't know anything about that either. I think. You know, that's what I I love about doing these interviews is every person I've spoken with so far, it's all about, like, who they are Mm -hmm. um, as individuals and taking those kind of strengths and creative endeavors and integrating it into their business has Mm -hmm. been probably a big part of their success, I think. And, um, I mean, that's just what you're sharing from the age of seven, loving writing, and now you're going to write a book and integrate it into all the knowledge that you have had over the years and the work you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's also something like the discovery of being a writer evolved over time. And it was something where I realized, yes, it's hard, but compared to a lot of other things, this is easy for me. Mm-hmm. And it's a gift that I have. And I kind of feel like I should be using those gifts for benefit of other people Mm -hmm. all the experience that I've had shouldn't get wasted wasted is a bad word to say wasted just on me Mm -hmm. but that if it can benefit a lot of other people I would like for them to benefit from all the process that I've been through or the suffering that I've been through so after you write it then the next step is to get it edited and then off to a publisher the next step really is to kind of rearrange it. It needs a little bit of cutting up and, and kind of stringing together and, and it's organized, but it, it needs a little bit of reshaping and kind of uh, further defining the voice of it. I'll do an edit on it. I'll have somebody else edit and then I'm going to self publish. Ooh, very cool. Yeah. And that's, that's another cool thing about technology and how society has changed is that, you can self-publish and be very successful at it, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I think, encouraging for those of us, especially that are solopreneurs, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there, we don't have to like piggyback off of these larger processes and systems per se in order to benefit Mm -hmm. with our products or programs or whatever we're doing. Yeah, I think I think everything with the technology is more like that. I look at things that people are doing, you know, with videos and audios and self-publishing books and putting together all these programs, and you just you couldn't do that twenty or thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it is a radical change too. I think for therapists in general, which is that we don't need to be limited mm-hmm. in that way. You know, if you're 
if your strength really is public speaking or teaching or whatever it is, writing, you know, that it can get out there. Whereas before it would have been a long drawn out process, seeking a legitimate publisher, getting it peer reviewed, things like that. There's a lot of different routes that we can take now to share that information. It's exciting. So when it comes to building a business, would you say there's any kind of hard lessons learned that you would like to share to save people from the same kind of experience? Oh, you are so appealing to my save everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, whatever works to get the info out here. What would I like to save people from? (laughs) Hmm. Okay. I have a background in commercial real estate. Uh So, I have managed to do fine for myself in terms of the renting an office part. I would say if you don't know anything about real estate, which is most everyone, please, please, please use a broker. It's not going to cost you anything. And the broker will protect you legally and financially and in some very practical ways. Um, I would also say don't be cheap about getting consultation on certain things. Amen. <laughs> One of the big, big, big problems I see, and, and it's, again, I came from a business background, so it's something I managed to miss out on, but I think therapists in general are kind of avoidant about the financial stuff, and so the idea of even doing something like hiring a CPA is a huge problem um, and a mistake to be avoided. Absolutely. Um, I think in terms of business building mistakes, don't depend on one source for your referrals. Resources dry up, they get bored, they find a new flavor. Um, You need to constantly cultivate business. Uh, So I'd say the, the mistake would be becoming complacent and thinking that just because you've done all these coffee dates and flyers and whatever, that's good and now you're going to be all set for the next 30 or 40 years. That is not true. Yes. Would be nice though, but yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. All very good. I used a broker and I'm so glad I did because I would have been taken for. And mm-hmm. then he was like, every time your lease is up, you call me to renegotiate. I was like, oh, okay. I would never even would have thought of that. And mm-hmm. I mean, you make so many good, really good points in, about investing in yourself as a business, you know, so that way you save yourself heartache, you provide quality service. I mean, consultation is worth so much. I owe so much to the people that I have gotten supervision and consultation from. Right. And, and getting a lot of ongoing training, I think, not a mistake, but avoiding of that sort of thinking that you're finished when you've got your graduate degree and you've got that license. I spent six years in private training and consultation with some people that I consider to be mentors in one aspect of the work that I do mm-hmm. uh, with mind-body psychology. And it was expensive. And they're amazing. And it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. What are some of the tools that you recommend people use in building their practices? Um, What helps you now that you use? Hmm. I will confess that I hate a certain very popular bookkeeping program. (laughs) 
and <laughs> still rely on a good old-fashioned spreadsheet mm-hmm. for those sorts of things. Um, I do. I use them in uh, simultaneously, and I pay somebody to do the popular program um, because it's what the rest of the world is running on. But I don't like it, and it doesn't work for me. And I think that that's you know. Picking the popular tools, I think, actually, is something that I would say is a tip. At least relatively popular or established, because you're going to have a lot easier time finding people who can help you with it. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, my financial planner, my CPA, they run on this one program. That's why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. They get it completely backwards and forwards. I also paid them (laughs) to sit there and input some 900 (laughs) transactions that I hadn't allocated. (laughs) And that was really worth it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Business building tools, social media stuff, I like Buffer. You guys introduced me to that. Um, I think other... Anything other tools specifically like software has? Just anything that you really like to use in building your practice, marketing your practice... Whatever. It doesn't have to. It could be from the chair you sit in to the (laughs) software you use. I don't care. I do really like my chair. I do too. I'm a big, it's a big, that's the most expensive piece of furniture in my office. And it saved me probably so much pain. What chair do you have? I have an Eckerness Stressless. So do I. For my therapist chair, and I have a steel case leap for my desk chair. Oh, I don't have that. But I think I need to get one. You are missing out. You are definitely missing out. Actually, that would be one tip, is having a really good chair. And by good, I mean seriously ergonomic and probably expensive. Um, When you're thinking about business, there's a lot of things you can cheap out on. And in fact, I went to a used furniture store and I got the leap chair for probably 20% of the retail price of it. Mm -hmm. Nice. That that is definitely one of my hot tips. Now you all know that I bought a used chair. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. But nobody else does. Um. Business building stuff, I think public speaking is probably my favorite thing in terms of just making connections with the community. It's my comfort zone, especially that whole psychoeducational thing. And people are, I get excited when they get excited about learning new stuff. Um, So that is fun for me, actually. I know it strikes terror in the heart of many people, but it's, it's my favorite way of doing it. So where do you see things going um, in the next year or so as you, you're going to publish this book? Do you see more psychoeducation coming into play into how you work? Or I think so, yes. The intention with this book is definitely to present it in a more national or even international sort of way. And probably just do some more writing in the same vein um, from kind of the uniquely psychological mind-body perspective. So 
obviously I'm not a, a medical person per se, but kind of breaking down a lot of the medical stuff and talking about how to deal with it. I think it's a real missing piece. And it was the thing that pushed me towards health psychology was that there is so much suffering and so much trauma and misery associated with medical practices and the experience of going through the medical system for people. And there just isn't the, the support, except in very limited cases. You know, we have things like a post-stroke support group at one of the hospitals or, uh, you know, the cancer support groups are pretty well developed at this point. But for everything else, that's just not there. Mm -hmm. And it does tend to become something where people feel isolated. And so I think just educating about the fact that you don't need to be isolated with it um, and you don't even have to go to therapy necessarily. You can do a lot of this yourself. Mm -hmm. But uh, by the way, there are some of us who specialize in this. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> so for me, then that's a marketing tool, definitely. But it's also just a passion to educate again. So I think that what I see is just is focusing on that. I have probably at this moment two national speaking gigs associated with one of these topics. Um, and I would definitely like to see if I can if I can turn that into more speaking of that sort where I get a bigger audience and, and kind of test the waters and see where that goes. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank so you. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? They can contact me by phone, 310-625-6083. They can email me at askdrgretchen at gmail.com, which is A-S-K-D-R-G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N. Or they can look me up through my website, which is drgretchenkubaki.com. D-R-G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N-K-U-B-A-C-K-Y. Awesome. I'll put that also in the notes of the blog. But just for podcast listeners. Um, That's good because it's a tough name. <laughs> Gretchen, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story. Um, lots of great um, information for people. And um, I appreciate you answering my questions on the fly. <laughs> sure. My pleasure. All right. Um, thanks, you guys. And share below uh, what you learned from Gretchen's story. And feel free to ask any questions. Thanks.